You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is printed for you in your order of worship. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we've got one on the back table I want to give you. and want to put it in your hands. That's our gift to you. Uh, either any way you have it in front of you, I'd invite you to, to open it. It's good to have the text in front of you. If you're looking for Ecclesiastes, go about halfway in your Bible. It's the book of Psalms. Keep going to the right a little bit. You'll pass Proverbs, and then you'll come to Ecclesiastes. If you get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, the names of people, you've gone too far. So head back to the left, all right? All right. Let me remind us what we're doing here. Look, humans, uh, people, us, we've been described as meaning makers. And what, what we mean by that is that we're, we're storytellers. And not pointless stories, but stories that give insight, stories that, that uh, speak to us, con- give context, give structure to the disparate things going on in our world. The problem is, is that as much as we are uh, ever seeking to create meaning, to, to give meaning to events, our world violently resists the idea of meaning, especially the meaning we want to give it. And so we search and we search to find something that can carry the weight of our desires for the world, those desires we want to deliver for us. And so three weeks ago now, we looked into this book called Ecclesiastes, and we looked at the topic of significance, the question of can I find meaning in whether or not I matter? Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, wisdom, being able to understand the world and thus predict how the world, quote-unquote, works. And then last week, we looked at pleasure, right? Can pleasure bear the freight that we want it to? Can it actually deliver on the promises uh, it makes? And this week, we look to responsibility or right living. Can making all the right decisions deliver on what we want from it? What we will find is, like all other good things, when we make it ultimate, it becomes meaningless. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I'd invite you to stand, as is our habit here, in honor of God's Word. Let me remind us before we get into this, this is God's Word, friends. This is not, uh, this book isn't something that Christians decided, hey, this is a good one. We'll go with this one instead of some other one. This isn't one that we... uh, that, that even this church said, let's, let's go with this book instead of a different one. This is God's word, which means it actually lays claim to us instead of us laying claim to it. Let's hear it in that way. So, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. 
seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the fool dies just, or how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've come into this place with different stories, different experiences, different expectations. We're only asking now that you would come and open our hearts. And as we bring those things, meet us in the midst of them. Let's preach your gospel to us, Lord. Let Jesus and his cross come forward. Let me just kind of fall into the background. And Lord, preach your gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we've come. Give us ears to hear, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. In July of 1986, our country was introduced to a young man by the name of Ferris Bueller. Those of you who haven't seen the movie, you need to see it. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. But most of us who have seen the movie in this room, particularly in this room, not in every place, but in this room in particular, my guess is have this love-hate relationship with Ferris. Because on the one hand, probably all of us wish that we could cut loose as well as he does. Skipping school to go play throughout the, the city of Chicago with all of the hijinks that ensues. You know, you know the story. But on the other hand, again, I think probably in this room, we probably rage against him, much like his sister, Jeannie, did. This is because he lies, he shirks his responsibility, and he plays while others work, and... He gets away with it. All while the rule-keeping, very responsible genie, his sister, um, who works so hard to expose him, fails at every turn. And for many of us in this room, this drives us bunkers. Let's be honest. Most of us in here were taught that you need to do the right thing, you need to be responsible, and, and, and then when we do those things, it's going to go well for you. But then we got into the world, and sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. And then we see folks who haven't done it right. And things are better for them than for us, and we get wicked ticked off. Why? Ultimately, because we think that right living can deliver on our hopes. That's what we're going to look at this morning because that's what the teacher, the preacher of Ecclesiastes sets out to talk about this morning. Uh, There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you, as always. Uh, We're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at living responsibly. We're going to look at dying responsibly. And then finally, we're going to try and redeem responsibility. Okay? Let's start with living responsibility. Let's be honest. This is a really bipolar message, isn't it? Like, you you get into this book and you read this section. it's, It's like, I mean, he says one thing. He's like, you know, wisdom is great. And then all of a sudden he's like, hey, wait a minute. And then he kind of goes on and says the exact opposite. He goes in a different direction. But it makes sense if we keep in mind the whole book. Remember, some of you are here, you'll remember this. Others of you, let me, let me bring us to date. We're dealing with a dude here who's writing Ecclesiastes. And he's writing from the perspective, not of faith. Not of faith. That's not the perspective he's writing from. He's writing from a deeply secular perspective to see if he can find meaning in the many options that the world gives. 
Which is why we talked about like um, being significant, and we talked about trying to have the world figured out. And then last week, pleasure, because you know, that's a big one, right? And so we should expect that as he's looking at this, this is going to bring some pretty ambivalent responses. Because the truth is that you and I both think that one thing or another is going to do it for us. That we're going to be able to find our hopes, our meaning, our... our, our, our um, we're going to be able to find something that we can put our weight in and just kind of, yes, that's where I'm at. And we believe it until we try it and then it doesn't work. And our response, quite frankly, isn't much different than his. We find something like, ooh, that's it, that's it, that'll do it. And then it doesn't, we're like, ugh, I hate everything. You know, that's the way we work. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little. Let's start, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at verses 12 to 14 and see how he looks at the idea of responsibility. Now, the first thing you'll notice is that he doesn't say responsibility, right? <laughs> he never says that. Uh, he says wisdom. Now, some of you are like, great, preacher, I hadn't even read the book. Uh, and here he's, he's getting up to talk about it. Um, look, here, here's the thing. When we're talking about wisdom... We're talking about making good decisions. We're talking about making good decisions. In the Bible, there are certain books that are called wisdom literature. Um, the book of Proverbs comes right before this, little short, pithy sayings. You know, answer a fool according to his folly. Very next word. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Very confusing. Anyway, but the, the, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, and they're there um, in the New Testament. The book of James is similar. It's, it's wisdom literature as well. And they are there to help shape us into the kind of people that make wise decisions. And we tend to call things like this, like making wise decisions, acting responsibly, saving money, working hard, those kind of things, right? That's, that's living responsibly. And this is especially the case we see as he contrasts wisdom with folly and madness there in verse 12. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that word madness. Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, that word madness um, doesn't mean like crazy, like drooling on you, like, you know, going nuts, getting getting put in the hospital kind of thing. What it means is, when he talks about madness, he's talking about a boastful arrogance that sets itself up against God. Like, God's over here doing his thing, we're made to follow him, and instead, the boastful, arrogant person, who the Bible says, dude, you're mad, you're crazy, is the one who sets himself up apart from him and says, I can do things on my own, thank you very much, I don't need you. Okay? Folly is the opposite of wisdom. It's, it's, um, it, it's foolish living. And it's often used in regards to, to things like taking excessive risks or um, letting your uninformed opinions fly, right? Or, um, or, or repeating mistakes over and over and over again, right? The Proverbs said, talks about it like this. It says that just as the dog returns to its vomit, ugh, dog people. I'm sorry. Like, ugh. But that's the way it describes a fool who keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again, right? And also uh, something like not being able to manage your finances. So that's what, that's what uh, the, the wisdom literature calls folly. We would look at that and call that irresponsibility, right? It's just different language for the same thing in our, in our culture. Are you with me? Now here he says, wisdom is better than folly. In other words, Acting responsibly is better than acting irresponsibly. And everyone says, duh. Like, you're going to sit here and talk to me about this for 30 minutes. Okay, I got this one. All right. Okay. Now, he says that, but then he says that there is more gain in it than folly. Now, some of you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that word gain, that um, it, it means it's, it's, it's economic language. It means profit. In other words, 
what I'm getting from it. In other words, what he's saying is, look, you're going to get more from responsibility than from irresponsibility. It will, it will deliver for you. It's going to give you something more than the other will, just as much as you'll get more from light from, than darkness. Okay? So far, so good, right? I mean, what he's saying is that responsibility is a good thing. It's a good thing. That's important for us to see here because some of you are nervous right now about what I'm about to say. You're nervous because you see the, the title. It says, The Meaninglessness of Responsibility. And you think, this dude's going to tell me that God wants me to be irresponsible. That faith is about being reckless. And some of you already have your walls up. You're like, I know that ain't right. Prove it. And you're, you just, your walls are already up. Okay? You've already tuned me out, but I need you to listen in. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says, Responsibility, good. Okay, we're all on the same page. Responsibility, good. Much better than walking into a wall in the dark. Okay? Okay, we're good? All right. But here's the chink in the armor. Look down at verse 14. He says, And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Hmm. Now, wait a minute. All right. Before we make conclusions, we need to understand who the all of them are, right? Well, looking up through the passage, the only groups that he talks about here are the wise and the fools, the responsible and the irresponsible. Okay? And then when he says that phrase, the same event happens, the originally literally says the same fate awaits. Now, here's what that means. In, in, in the Greek world, the idea of fate means um, an impersonal force, kind of a, an impersonal causation that directs the ends of events to which the agents who are working out the means have no power over. Fate doesn't care who you are, what you've done. It has set, like... That's going to happen. And some of you might be familiar with Greek mythology. I was a, uh, that was my nerdiness as I was growing up. I loved it. Um, but in Greek mythology, you could find out what your fate is, and you could try and do everything you could to fight against it. It didn't matter. That's what's going to happen. Uh, it, it happens apart from individual agents. Now, that is not what is meant here. Some folks think that's what's meant by God's sovereignty, but quite frankly, that's either a caricature or a lack of understanding. That is not what, what the Scripture means when it talks about God being sovereign. But it is, this word fate is, however, the closest word that English has for what's trying to be communicated here, okay? And what's being communicated here is not fate so much as events that happen outside of our control. Things that are happening outside of our control. That's what the original's getting at. Saying that, though, has a... It, it, it brings forward something to mind. It, it brings out, it implies that our attempts at responsibility have an end. That there is something that we expect our responsibility to do for us, but then we have this problem, the fact that there are events that happen outside of our control, of which we have no part in. We think our responsibility can control outcomes, but ultimately the teacher says it can't. In other words, our teacher is beginning to imply that the, that the idea of responsibility can't deliver on its promise. The reason why is found in the disturbing conclusion. So look down at verses 15 to 16. He, he basically says this. The responsible, the irresponsible, they all die. What's the point? What's the point? Okay, now here's where it hits the fan, right? You know what this is talking about. So, so don't, don't pretend you're shocked by this conclusion. Because, because some of you, some of you have been the good kid. Some of you still are the good kid, all right? 
You've kept your nose clean. You've kept all the rules. And things just aren't working for you. And at the same time, you look across the aisle. Don't do it right now. You look across the aisle and you see the irresponsible one, the lazy one, the reckless one, the selfish one. And everything seems to work right for them. You've done it all right. You're living paycheck to paycheck. They've done everything wrong and they're living large. Right? This is what he's talking about with the enduring remembrance stuff. Remember, he isn't just saying, look, everyone dies. That's true. What he's saying is, things aren't quid pro quo. Things aren't, I do X, I get Y. If I don't have Y, it's because I haven't done X. Things don't work like that. And he brings this to its zenith with with this idea of death. I mean, look, I know it sounds really silly to think you can keep death away (laughs) by responsibility. Until you remember the story of the Bible. Because you see, the Bible is really honest about things. It's really honest about the, the fact that the world isn't right. It doesn't paint a Pollyanna picture of things at all. Like, the world is jacked. It is just straight up not the way it's supposed to be. God created the world good, and we were part of that. And, and in the beginning, uh, the, the Bible tells us that everything kind of lined up exactly as it was supposed to be. I was telling our Engage Holy Cross group this morning that the, the Bible talks about it in terms of shalom, that it's, it gives a word to it. And we hear shalom, we think peace, we think peace, we think no one's fighting each other. And yes, but that's not it entirely. It, it means everything lining up exactly as it was supposed to. That all of the relationships in the world between us and God, us and one another, us and the creation, creation and God, like everything, all this web of relationships, all is fitting together exactly the way it's supposed to. That's the way the world was created. Everything in harmony. No, no, no conflict, no, um, no hurts, no pain. Everything is good and it is wonderful. We were in an unbroken relationship with God. And because of that, we were also in an unbroken relationship with each other in creation. That's how we were designed to flourish. That's why when we look around the world, we know something ain't right, but we can't really tell what it is. The problems came when we believed a lie, that God wasn't for us, that, that he didn't really care for us, that he wasn't really telling us the truth. Did God really say? That's what the servant said, right? God wasn't really telling us the truth. That, that in fact, it, it wasn't just enough that we were made in his image. We could actually be like him. And just reflect him. You can actually be like him. You can be independent of him. I know you were created to be dependent, or he said you were created to be dependent. But you can be independent. You can do your own thing. And when we believed that, we sinned against God. We turned away from him. We sought our own way. And when we did that, when we said, God, I don't need you anymore. I'm going this way. All of that shalom came apart. It all came apart. Everything came out of joint. And the scripture says that when this happens, this brought on a few things. It brought on guilt. Okay? Now, some of us, you're in church, so maybe you're used to hearing that. But it brought on guilt. And this shouldn't surprise us. You can't betray another person without having to bear that offense. Especially when the other person is like the Lord of all creation. It's a big deal. But it wasn't just guilt. Things came out of joint. Which meant that now, though we were meant for an unbroken relationship with God, now we're alienated from him. Things aren't right. We're, we're, now, um, we're now separate from him because of our sin. But what's more, now we're living according to that lie. Remember that lie? He's not for you. You can be like him. You don't need him. Now everyone, everyone who's born lives according to that lie. 
I can be independent from him. Not only can I, I must. I must be independent from him because he's not for me. And the Bible summarizes all of this. That's a lot of stuff, right? The Bible summarizes all with one word. Death. That's death. Scripture says we're dead in our transgressions and sins, which means that because we're dead, we sin. Or better, because we're sinners by nature. And I know that word has a lot of baggage with it. All that means is betraying God. It's a relational break. It doesn't mean breaking a rule. It means breaking a relationship. Because we are that by nature, we then sin. Not that we sin and become that. We are that and we sin. We're betrayers and then we betray. That's an important distinction. But now here's the thing. Because we're independent, we constantly seek to fix this problem on our own. It is, it's not that we don't know there is a problem. You know there's a problem. When you wake up and you look in the mirror and, and things just, like, what am I doing? Or you turn on the news and you're like, what is wrong with the world? Or you go to work or you, or you go to a, it's almost holidays, right? You go to hang out with your family. The people are supposed to be for you and they, they, just, they just betray you. And you're like, what is going on? You know there's a problem. I know there's a problem. The, the thing is, is that we think the problem is something we are doing or not doing. And so if we just do the right things or stop doing the wrong ones, we can make it better. And you know this. This is, what, this is what every other world religion is based on and what, frankly, most people think Christianity is. Well, if you just, you just do the right things, you just try a little harder, what makes the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Christians are trying. No. That's, that's the idea that we can just do better and make it better. The Bible talks about this problem in terms of death, and we think we can fix our problem on our own, and in this case, with our responsibility. But he says, death comes to both. <laughs> death comes to both. In other words, you can't overcome your death problem by being more responsible. It doesn't work. You can't reform dead people. They don't need reform. They need rescue. And that brings an honest response. Look down at verse 17. He says, So, I hated life. I hated it. This is so true, is it not? We, we think I can make life work for me. I can make things right. I can make myself right. If only I do this, and then it doesn't work, and we get ticked off. In my house, we call what this dude is doing right here, we, we call it a tantrum, right? It's almost like you can hear him say, I hated life. And then he's like, <gasps> Until he turns blue, right? You, you, you almost can see him do that. In, in my house, this is a tantrum. Everyone in my house does it. The only difference is mommy and daddy know the socially acceptable ways to do it so that no one looks at us and goes, what is wrong with you? Like, but we all do it, right? We all do it. We get mad because of what the teacher says. All is vanity. All is meaningless. And remember, what we said about meaningless is what it doesn't mean is that it's, it's pointless. Meaningless means it, it's, it's vaporous. It promises substance, but it can't deliver. Everything is meaningless. It's, it's like chasing after the wind. Everything over-promises and under-delivers. We look to responsibility to make the world right, to make us flourish, and it can't, so we get mad. We get mad. Life is rigged to harm me. And it never occurs to us that maybe we placed our hopes in the wrong things. 
You don't believe me. Let me get specific. Some of us in this room were taught that if we worked hard, it would pay off and we'd get ahead, right? So we were good little boys and girls. Really good. We have worked hard, always meeting expectations. And we've met every expectation, and yet here we sit in the same place, or worse, a worse place than we've always been in. Others of us that were told uh, what, I, what I think is this uh, wonderfully awful lie, uh, something like this, um, that if we just wait, if we just wait till we're married, you know what I'm saying? If we just wait to have sex till we're married, that everything in our marriage relationship is great, be wonderful, be cosmic shaking, it'll be awesome, and then it's not, and we're like, and we look over, and folks who did it wrong, they're having a great marriage, and we're like, ah, but I did it right. Or we believe that if we just follow this book's plan with our kids, and if we just do this book's plan, and we do it right, that they're going to turn out great, and then we did it, and they didn't. One of them still went off the deep end, or maybe all of them. So we get mad. We get really mad. We get mad at life. We get mad at ourselves. And we get mad at God. Why? Because it didn't deliver. Just like the teacher, we say, what's the point then? What's the point? It couldn't, it didn't give me what it said it would. What's the point? Some of us have even confused responsibility, quite frankly, for a relationship with Jesus. You think you have a relationship with Jesus, but you don't. You're just trying to meet his expectations. Which, by the way, if you are, you haven't read his expectations. Okay? Just straight up. And you've confused responsibility, doing things for him, with having a relationship with him. They're not the same. They're not the same. And so you've gotten mad at him, too. Because he hasn't given you what you're supposed to get. It's not quid pro quo. Listen to me. If you think your responsibility can take away the curse, if you think it can make your life right, it will always disappoint you. Always. It isn't that the world is rigged against you, and it isn't that you aren't working hard enough. It's that it was never made to carry that freight. It can't do it. Life is not an equation. It's not an equation. If you look to responsibility and right living to make things right, it will be meaningless. So what? So now what? <laughs> what do we do with that? Right? I want to bring this home in two ways this morning. If you were checked out, check back in real quick, okay? The first way is keeping death at bay. I said a little bit ago that we try and fix our problem on our own and can't. That's the whole point of this passage, right? You can't fix it with your responsibility. And this certainly makes sense, right? If our problem is that we betrayed God by moving from dependence to independence, we can't make that better on our own. That's just more independence. You can't fix it on your own. You can't remove death by being responsible because death isn't a result of irresponsibility. Death is a result of sin, right? And so if you're going to deal with death, then you have to deal with sin. So now what? Well, this is where Christianity says something unique to us. Because what it says to us is Jesus. 
Because Christianity says you don't need reforming. You don't need a 12-fold path. You don't need pillars to follow. You don't need a guru. To, you don't need a rules to keep. You need a rescuer. You need a rescuer. You don't need reforming. That's the message of every other world system. You just need to clean up your act a little bit. You just need to make it a little better. You don't need your behaviors reformed or your beliefs or what have you. You don't need reforming. You need rescue. We need God to rescue us from our independence, from our guilt, from our alienation. And this is what God promised to do right when we betrayed him. We turned away from him in the garden. Right away, he said, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make it right. And then he picked this guy named Abraham. He said, I'm going to make it right through your family. And then it went through Abraham, and it, it came, and he, it kept getting narrow and narrow. He comes to David. He says, I'm going to do it through your family. And, it's going to, and he's going to be a king. And then suddenly, onto the scene comes this guy named Jesus. And that is why he came in the first place. You and I can't live a perfect life of obedience. We can't live the life of dependence on God by nature. We can't do it. Because the lie is there. We all believe it. We're all stuck in it. And so Jesus lived that life that we couldn't. Perfect love of God and neighbor. We couldn't do it, so Jesus did. We couldn't, we couldn't be with God and still have our guilt there for our betrayal. It would always be between us. And so Jesus came. And he died of the sinner's death. He died the death that you and I deserve. He died to bear that guilt for us. And then he offers all of this to us by faith. In other words, it's not about what we need to do. Like, okay, okay, Rick, I hear this Jesus thing. So what do I need to do for him? No, 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 you're not listening. It's not about what you need to do. It's about receiving what he did. Responsibility can't make your life right because what is wrong about it is your sin, not your irresponsibility. Responsibility can never hold the freight of your flourishing. But the strong shoulders of Jesus can. They can. And they did. He reconciles us to himself by his life, death, and resurrection. But frankly, you have got to give up your pride and actually accept his grace to you. Listen to me. When we get mad, we, we get mad when responsibility doesn't work. Because we think God owes us something. We do this, God owes us. He owes us a good job, a good family, a spouse, maybe a different spouse. Like, he owes us. But if you believe that God owes you anything, anything, then you fundamentally believe that you do not need grace. Which means that you fundamentally believe, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not really broken. He's lucky to have me. He just needs to overlook these other things. Like I expect everyone else to. You and I have betrayed him. We've turned from him, hated him. All that we are owed is to bear the weight of that betrayal. But Jesus, by grace, offers us what responsibility never can. To deal with our sin. To deal with what our sin messed up in the first place. But then what do we do with responsibility, right? I mean, we, I said at the beginning that responsibility isn't bad. It's good. It's just not meant to be ultimate. The, the teacher says it's good. And, and, and there's not just two options. It's not either just be responsible or irresponsible. And so he's like, well, responsibility is bad, so that must mean I'm supposed to... No, no, no. It's, it's not two paths. There's a third one. Responsibility is better than irresponsibility. But here's the thing. If you act responsible to get something from it, two things will always happen. You will always be enslaved to it, and you will always be angry about it. Here's why. You'll be enslaved to it because you will be scared of what will happen if you ever break a rule. 
If you ever don't meet an expectation, if you ever miss a deadline, what will happen? If that's got to deliver for you, if you're going to get something from doing this, what's going to happen if I don't? And you will always be enslaved to doing it because of that fear. And you'll be angry about it because even after, all, even after you've done all that you can, events that are out of your control will still come upon you. And it won't work like you thought it was going to. But if you've trusted in Christ and been reconciled to God through him, then you are free to return responsibility from being ultimate to being good. It has nothing to deliver for you. Listen, responsibility has nothing to deliver on. So then you can use it. You can use your responsibility to flourish others. In other words, you can give instead of getting. It has nothing to deliver for you. So you can be wise with your decisions out of thankfulness instead of out of entitlement. It has nothing to deliver for you. So you can hold things loosely, knowing that in Christ, your life is secure. Your life is secure. And if this goes away, you'll grieve, but it won't destroy you. You don't have to be in control. Now let me conclude. What really bugs us about Ferris, if we're being honest, is that he felt free. I mean, watch the movie. He felt free. He was completely secure in his relationship with his parents, right? His parents thought he was the greatest thing ever. Now, it, it, it bit him in the butt because, uh, you know, he... he pulled the wool over their eyes, but he felt completely secure. It's what bugged his sister. He had the love of his parents. He had the adoration of his school. He had the loyalty of his friends. I would wager what we really connect with is Jeannie, the sister who thinks that her performance is what holds her place. I'm the good one. I'm the responsible one. I'm the one that, and and it's not working for me. Ferris, out of his position, plays. And Jeannie sought to work to earn her position, namely by exposing Ferris. What you and I hunger for is reconciliation with God. That is the meaning that we were made for. Responsibility can never deliver that. You can't work to get it. It must be freely accepted in Jesus. But when you do, when you do, you are free from that position to both work and to play. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we're all in this room in different places. And I said that at the beginning, the reality is that some of us are checking this out. We're, we're not even sure what Christianity is about. Um, we're, but we're checking it out. We're curious. Some of us have been uh, in a church longer than we've been walking The reality is that both of us have the same need. All of us have the same need. We have the need of the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust in that, to lay our faith in Jesus, whether it was for the first time ever or for the first time in the last five minutes. And in that, to be able to return our our treasured and idolized responsibility back to the place it belongs, to being good and not being worshipped. 
Give us the grace to do that, Lord. Only you can do it. Holy Spirit, you are the, you are the one who is operative here. Would you, would you shape us, mold us into the image of Christ? We ask it in his name. Amen.